0: This is episode 221 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Metabolism and Cell Fate, with Dr. Lydia Finley. Hey, everyone. We are Dalon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Lydia Finley from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center on the podcast to talk about her research investigating how cellular metabolic pathways regulate sulfate decisions in stem cells and cancer. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news that's coming right up.
1: But first, we want to hear from you. Let us know which topics you'd like to hear featured more often on the podcast, and what we could be doing better in our five-minute listener feedback survey. Fill out the survey at stemcellpodcastcom survey 2022 by July twentieth for a chance to win a Stem Cell Podcast Bluetooth speaker. We're gonna go into the roundup with a pretty big paper, high-profile paper coming from the the lab of Sheng Ding, who is well known for his work in small molecule mediated reprogramming. This is something that he's been doing for a long time. Uh, he's got a joint appointment, actually, apparently at Tsinghua University in China, as well as at Gladstone at UCSF. And we know that another Gladstone number in, in um, Shinyu Yamanaka of IPSC fame also apparently has a dual appointment at UCSF. So maybe it's something they do there quite a bit. But yeah, Shen Ding has been in the field for a long time focused on screening small molecules for different applications, whether it's differentiation, whether it's reprogramming to pluripotency, and he's taken his screening approaches one step further and actually had, well, they put together this really cool nature paper, Induction of Mouse Totipotent Stem Cells by a Defined Chemical Cocktail. So anytime you're talking about induction of totipotency, you know, a lot of ears are gonna perk up. This is a a big deal. We were talking with Martin Perra about how this is kind of a, a holy grail in the field. I think you know, definitive totipotent stem cells and long-term maintenance of these things is, is really the, the the ultimate goal, in part because you can get the, the somatic tissues and you can get the extra embryonic tissues from these so-called totipotent stem cells as well. So I think this is one of a probably a, a few different papers that has focused on this area recently, but I think the real cool factor here is the chemical reprogramming to, to make this happen. This is a mouse study first and foremost, okay, because you have to do the complementation studies as well to verify the true totipotency of these toti scs these totipotent stem cells um, so we're talking about the the t- two cell embryos right totipotency is going all the way back to the zygote um, which are you know like the the early zygote the blastomere the two cell embryos which are authentic totipotent stem cells capable of producing all the different differentiated cells like i mentioned embryonic extraembryonic embryonic tissues ultimately making the whole organism right And making these totipotent stem cells and maintaining them has been a challenge, just like maintaining and making IPSCs was a challenge a long time ago. And now it's kind of an everyday thing. And here they're basically, like I said, screening a bunch of small molecules, ultimately found three small molecules TTNPB. And there's, I honestly don't know the the target of these small molecules. I think a lot of, this is the tricky thing about using these small molecules, okay, because they have, they're small molecules. By definition, they have off-target effects too. So, the question is, you know, is it the on-target or the off-target that's really mediating the the maintenance of the totipotent stem cells here, or is it some combination of that, right? So, TTN, PB1, azakinpallone, and WS6. So, they designated these cells you know, after they subjected them to these chemicals, the three small molecules, as chemically induced totipotent stem cells. They resembled the mouse totipotent 2C embryo stage cells using a bunch of characterizations. They verified this transcriptome, epigenome, metabolome characterization of these cells, comparing them to the real deal. Um, in addition, these totipotent stem cells uh, exhibited bidirectional developmental potentials and are able to produce both Embryonic and extraembryonic cells in vitro, and also in teratoma complementation assays in mice. Um, after they injected these totipotent stem cells into the eight-cell embryo, these uh, cells contributed to both the embryonic and extraembryonic lineages with high efficiency. So it's I think it's a it's a really neat approach. I think there's some potential controversy in the field about these cells and really making sure they are truly bona totipotent stem cells. I think I was talking to, to Ed Grow, who is another researcher in this particular field, also Jun Wu, affiliated with Jun Wu, I believe, who is interested in this work, but has also mentioned that some aspects of this have been done in the past. I think the real Goal. And the real beauty of this work, like I mentioned before, is the small molecule-mediated approach, making these cells that are resembling resembling, um, totipotent stem cells and those early zygote, early blastomere-like cells. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of downstream characterization that has to has to happen here, just to really verify the identity of these cells. But I think the approach in itself is really cool.
0: Yes, the the and the system, right? I, I think it's. Uh... It's amazing to have a a tool that allows you to ask these really basic basic questions, um, and I don't think we were there yet, right? We had to use the, the actual two-cell embryos, um, and as you said, it's a big story, I think, and part of that maybe I don't want to you know distract here, but the toady element of that you hear toady and and everybody's thinking oh the all-powerful cell. But on a practical level, I don't know that this is really earth shattering, right? Um, the, the existence of these shell, uh, uh, the cell type, um, it was known and described. And in terms of like the clinical output, I think it's a bigger deal for me personally, the idea that we were able to get um, reprogramming of somatic cells using only small molecules. I think that's the real earth shaking uh, advance of recent... Months,, um, maybe years, uh, and this, while it has a tremendous potential, I think, as an experimental system, uh, as you also alluded to, it's about this this the small molecule. There's all these papers coming with the small molecule and these screening approaches to try and get whatever endpoint, in this case, the endpoint was the the two C-like cells. But uh, I think it was a really great point that you made there is the mechanism, right? I think that we need to have a whole other raft of papers. That really addresses how these cells are acquiring this identity um, from a, I guess, more advanced stage, a, a you know, pluripotent cell or maybe from a somatic cell reprogrammed to a pluripotent cell and then a two C-like cell. I think that the journey that these cells take, there's a lot there to unpack and may have some um real relevance to the function of these cells or their potential use, you know, either clinically or just for scientific insight. So I really another great paper in in the reams of stories that uh, the ding lab has has put out there but i'm personally um, waiting uh, more to see stuff uh, to see this done in human and to see what kind of questions that'll enable that we haven't been able to get at with human embryos Um, and also i I, i'm again just more concerned with the clinical output and generating cell types with with uh um pluripotent cells i don't know that this is necessarily in in that um sphere
1: yeah i agree with you i think seeing this um replicated in human as well would be really cool i think part of the limitation is some of the validation that you have to do to, to confirm the true totipotency. You can't necessarily do that in human conditions, right? Unless you use some sort of extended early uh, embryo model, which folks have developed recently, but I don't, you can't really take it that far. You know, Um, I agree with you there. I think that's, that's the next step. One, one, you know, thought (laughs) question, thought experiment that I have, or just concern that I have was if if these small molecule-mediated approaches have really caught on, especially for chemical reprogramming to iPSCs, you know, and, and they've been catching fire and have been published on recently quite a bit, why hasn't the field as a whole adopted them more, right? So what I'm saying is why aren't more people using small molecule-mediated production of iPSCs? I feel like it's still very much a uh, episomal plasmid, sendivirus, viral reprogramming, small molecule, it's cheap, right? It would be cheap and relatively easy. Of course, there are the off targets that you have to consider. um, But kind of makes me wonder why more people haven't utilized small molecule reprogramming for for various applications.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess a lot of people are just waiting to see, waiting for someone else to do it. um, And, and, you know, waiting for that bandwagon to build up some weight um, before they commit their whole research program to it. But yeah, I'm with you. You know, a lot of open questions. And I, I do uh, my hats off um, to the Ding lab and his collaborators for another big story. Um very basic. On the flip side of that, I'm going very clinical uh, with my first roundup story. This is a little bit of a cautionary uh, story here about Carti. You know we 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 have heard a ton about Carti. We've been reporting it. We were just at the ISSCR where we really saw, How the technology is maturing and moving into all kinds of solid tumors and even other applications that we've talked about in the show um but still you know there's only five treatments using CAR-T that have actually received regulatory approval they're all for b-cell malignancies Um, but there's hundreds literally hundreds of clinical trials that are trying to develop CAR-Ts towards many applications some of which we've spoken about but most of them, I think, are just trying to apply the CAR-T therapy in a way that's much more economical, perhaps safe and, and efficacious. And that's because uh, right now the the CAR-T therapies all entail use of autologous cells, right? You got to take out the cells and manipulate them and expand them all GMP, put them back into a patient. Very expensive. Um, I wouldn't say well, it's, it's inconsistent at times. Um, the, the methodologies and the cells of origin are not always the same. So uh, there's a question of whether or not you're always gonna get the same endpoint. Um, so a lot of the efforts now in these hundreds of trials that are out there are trying to uh, engineer and bank these allogeneic CAR T-type products. Um, and those involve targeting the endogenous T-cell receptor, Uh, and disrupting it, so you can prevent this graft-versus-host disease, right? Um, And most of the approaches to doing this, probably all of them, use these site-specific nucleases, and there have been many generations of these from, you know, the meganucleases, nucleases and now here, we've all pretty much settled on CRISPR-Cas9, and because of its efficiency, uh, and those technologies are really improving. Um, and becoming more specialized, but they're already in play in targeting the TCR loci, uh, but whenever you target the genes, you know, th- you can't really ensure that you're going you're gonna to have a clean um, targeting event. Uh, the off-target cleavage can be reduced, but you can't completely eliminate it. And that off-target effect can lead to gross uh, chromosomal aberrations. It's been shown that there's large uh, deletions in early mouse and human embryos that have been targeted by CRISPR-Cas9, as well as stem cells, induced pluripotent cell cell lines. Um, and these are, you know, not small indels all the time. Oftentimes they uh, uh, involve complete uh, chromosome loss um, of cr- most of the time chromosome 14 or 7, which is where the TCR alpha and beta Loci are uh, in fact, in the first clinical trial that involved using CRISPR Cas9 to disrupt the TCR locus and the programmed cell death protein one locus um, for like an allergenic T cell therapy, it was reported that there was a, a lot of deletions um, chromosomal translocations, and of course these these led to uh, reduced fitness in the T cells, so these um, the frequency of those translocations decreased over time. Like the longer the cells were in patients, the less these translocations were observed. But nevertheless, it's it's a, a bit of a cause for concern in a therapy that's really catching fire. So, uh, a group from Tel Aviv that was comprised of three lead investigators, Asaf Mahdi, Uri Ben David, and Adi Barzel. um they're all at Tel Aviv University. They use the same, uh rna guide sequences that were used in that first trial uh disrupting a tcr that led to all the chromosomal translocations they used the same methods the same rna guide sequences but here they wanted to get a much more granular measure of the degree to which these uh a- a- aneuploidies were occurring so they used uh, single cell rna seq they used they corroborated it with fish and using this digital droplet pcr and what they showed is that there is a lot of loss, a lot of loss of chromosome 14, which is wh- where the TCR alpha locus is, up to 9%, um, and a, a gain of chromosome 14 and, and much lesser, around 1%. Similarly, chromosome seven, where the T, uh, TCR beta locus is, uh, truncated in around 10%, similar to chromosome 14. Um, and the aneuploidy that they noticed there, as was observed before, uh, it was associated with reduced proliferation and cell death. Um, so those cells were reduced in frequency, the farther out you got from the infusion, but still up to 11 days after the transfusion, they they looked and saw that 1% roughly of T cells still had a chromosome 14 loss. So, you know, this is in the therapeutic window and, and you know there's no end to end point to show you know when these cells are, are aneuploidies is completely resolved but after a week they're still in there and presumably um, these translocations can affect function of the cells and may even uh, cause some malignancy i guess is the, is the real fear there so it, it's cer- certainly something to pay attention to and as the authors conclude uh, that the the, the chromosomal trun- truncation just as a, at a baseline should be monitored in um, all these clinical protocols where where uh, patients are treated.
1: Yeah, I think this is um it's an important study. It's perhaps a little scary. I mean, if you think about it, but in in some ways, and we talked about this a little bit before the show. Does it necessarily matter that this is happening to the, the edited T cells as long as certainly, yeah, we're not, they're not developing any sort of like oncogenic potential. Does it necessarily matter that they have these off-target, you know, CRISPR-induced uh, alterations in their genome as long as they're still doing what they're supposed to do? Um, I mean, <laughs> that that's a tricky thing to say, especially when it comes to getting FDA approval for these drugs and having any sort of oncogenic potential for, for these kind of cells. Given the off-target CRISPR is gonna be is gonna be a problem. I mean, folks have run into that problem with uh, you know introducing anything IPS derived for clinical therapy. Right, if there's any residual IPSCs that have the potential to form teratomas, then certainly that's gonna raise a lot of red flags. Because, you know, any sort of off-target oncogenic potential is certainly a a bit scary. Makes me wonder if some of the newer approaches for genome editing that are thought to be a little bit more clean, say like prime editing and all these other uh, non- Uh, the approaches that basically don't break the genome, right? Unlike traditional CRISPR-Cas9, which is basically taking a shotgun to the genome. That's the analogy I like to make. Uh, The approaches that aren't inducing a double-stranded break are perhaps more clean. And maybe if you're using a prime editing-based approach or some of these newer approaches, you'll be able to get around some of these um, problems. And even the zinc finger nucleases and maybe even talon are are cleaner in that way because, you know, maybe you won't have as many of these off-target effects, but pros and cons of using CRISPR, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the the, the trade off right if you get some more specificity. I, I don't know that you could really target the the genome in a in a pool of T cells at the scale you need to 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 really do these autologous therapies. But I think you you've you've addressed a good point. It doesn't matter, and I don't know it doesn't matter it matters. Sure. It matters if you're putting in a, a cell population where 1% after 11 days has chromosomal aneuploidy. It's like, yeah, there's some cancer potential there. But the, I think the real question is, is it a moot point in this, in this therapeutic, which is really mercenary one? So you can put in like a kill switch or a suicide switch there um, as a kind of prophylaxis. But more to the point there is that I think we're, with all these technologies are converging, as you alluded to there, or, or mentioned the, the prime editing and other cleaner methods uh, for targeting. And, and more than that, I think, is the idea that we, we saw was really surging at the ISSCR, which was getting a clonal bank allogeneic, you know, getting IPS cells, then you target the TCR locus and differentiate them to a T cell. So they're really all of one type, and there's a, a QC there that you can do on the back end um, to ensure that the product going into patients is safe. And I think that really is, is the bottom line at the end of the day, is as long as you're monitoring these things and, and, and you're having a look, uh, then you can you can say whether or not the potential is there and i mean in retrospect we may think that these autologous CAR T therapies are kind of barbaric in terms of the risk um, that they were willing to tolerate because yes we're we're doing this kind of shotgun approach to a lot of cells there's all different clones going in there and still have we seen any of the worst case scenarios in terms of neo neoplasm malignancy ALL CLL kind of emerging from the therapy itself Not yet, and we hope not to see it, Um, but still, all important questions, and as you said, an important paper just to acknowledge that this thing exists, right? You know, before I saw this paper, I had no idea, Um, but it's been pretty well known in the field, so an anecdotal report of chromosomal translocation, as was shown in that first trial, is one thing, but here, putting the numbers to it, I think, is really an important step for the field.
1: Yeah, bottom line is you got to do your qc and you know that folks like faith therapeutics you know who presented some cool ips uh work and clinical trial work is, is they're definitely doing their qc to the t here um because fda approval is contingent on it in a lot of ways it's 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 dependent on doing this really rigorous qc right this it's not just an academic approach this is stuff that's actually going into people so gotta do your qc moving on to something very different but i think. Is a, is a very, again, a very unique methods based story here. This is a story coming from Kyle Lowe, who is a, a superstar young stem cell biologist over at Stanford, Stanford one of Earth Weissman's disciples, I believe, uh, this is a cell paper that was actually talked about um, briefly at ICCR. He was presenting remotely on some of this work and it just so happened to drop, like I think a couple of weeks after ICCR ended. Um, so it's fun to, to highlight it here title is generating human artery and vein cells from pluripotent stem cells highlights the arterial tropism of NEPA and Hendra viruses I was actually sitting in on this session about using stem cells to model different viral infections and immune responses and stuff like that. I thought this was actually one of the coolest sessions at ISSCR. Yes, I'm biased I have done this some of this work in the past I've thrown some, virus not bsl4 virus oh my goodness not bsl4 virus bsl2 viruses onto cardiomyocytes to see what's the the mechanism of infection can we model like myocarditis that sort of thing i think it's a powerful application of stem cell technology is to study these different viral and environmental pathogens like i know people who are uh Studying Chagas disease, using IPS cardiomyocytes, basically introducing these Chagas pathogens directly into the cells and seeing what happens to the cells if they blow up or if you can protect the cells from that kind of stuff. So I think there's a lot of application here. Um, this is taking it to the extreme because NEPA and Hendra viruses are, are, are scary stuff. This is serious business, okay. These are quote unquote extraordinarily deadly viruses. 57 to 59% fatality rate. This is on the level of like Ebola, which is much more well known, but also quite deadly. These are also very deadly viruses. Um, So, this is using basically a, a stem cell model, a stem cell derived endothelial cell model to study the mechanisms of infection of NEPA and Hendra viruses. Okay. And I think the beauty here is in the the BSL-4 work, okay? It is very hard to do this, and there's only a select few facilities in the U.S. and around the world that are able to handle BSL-4 level viruses, biosafety level 4 viruses. You have to put on the spacesuits. You have to get on those, like, you know, fully uh, clean air systems just to make sure you're not ever exposed to anything like a single part or a particle of the virus, right? Because it can be fatal if you're, if you're infected. So what they're able to do here in Kyle's lab in collaboration with a bunch of actually other folks at Stanford and uh, some familiar faces here uh, uh, on, the, on the paper, Christy Redhorse, who is an expert in all things endothelial cell and coronary artery, for example, I'm sure she helped consult uh, Kyle for this particular work, especially on the EC side of things. So what they did is they generated pure populations of artery and vein cells from pluripotent stem cells, and then threw on some NEPA and Hendra viruses in their BSL-4 spacesuits <laughs> while wearing the BSL-4 spacesuits, and showed that both the NEPA and Hendra viruses preferentially infected the arterial cells, um, in part because the arteries expressed higher levels of their viral entry receptor, which is actually an ephrine, Ephrine B2, I believe, which is a a well-known marker of, I believe, arterial cells. So the virally infected artery cells fused into syncytia containing up to 23 nuclei, a ton of nuclei just kind of fusing together and they rapidly died, okay? And then, you know, despite the infecting arteries and occupying a ton of the transcriptome, the, both the NEPA and Hendra viruses largely eluded they they eluded the innate immune detection. So typically, you think about interferon response to help clear out the virus from these from these cells. I know this is the situation for like Coxsackie virus on cardiomyocytes. the the number one gene pathway that's really popped up after you throw a virus on these cells is the interferon response pathway because that's what cells like to do. They have to clear out those those viral particles. But in the case of the Nipah and Hendra viruses, they they don't do that. So maybe that's kind of a, a mechanistic reason as to why these viruses might be so deadly because the cells themselves are not able to clear out the viruses, okay? And I think that's, it's a relatively straightforward study in that way, okay? You know, serious virus, throwing it on these purified ECs, these arterial ECs, you have an arterial tropism. One thing I would have liked to see, well, a couple of things really, one would have been some sort of validation, if possible, in some sort of in vivo model. I know it's really hard with like these BSL-4 level viruses and even doing this work in in vivo systems is, you know, I'm sure outrageously difficult in getting that approved, Um, And the other thing is, I wonder if they could use this for some sort of drug screening approach, protecting the cells from viral proliferation, viral death. I think that would be really exciting in part because to combat some of these viruses like these bsl 4 level viruses that have a very high fatality rate they, they don't there's not a whole lot of treatments out there. I know Ebola has more than most just because of the the seriousness of the Ebola and because of the recent outbreaks of Ebola that have happened in the in the US for example. But I think for these Nipah and Hendra viruses there's not a whole lot of antivirals out there. There's a ribavirin or whatever remdesivir maybe that you can use for some of these viruses but I think that would be the real next step in in extending this kind of work in my opinion
0: yeah i I mean the the potential here is really amazing and i think it goes back to one of the things we've been talking about why ips cells are so great to begin with right is is modeling Um, and i think that's what really captured the imagination of the editors and the readership even the reviewers it seems with this paper uh, was the model like b s l four these deadly viruses making them you know more tractable for study. Um, and you know, as a endothelial focused uh, researcher myself, uh, who's really struggled with endothelial cell biology and and you know trying to recapitulate the reality of endothelial biology in a dish using ips cells i I, my one criticism of this paper is that there wasn't enough focus on the cells because that's what i was really so interested in and here we are you know decades in and the whole idea of getting the endothelial subtypes while we talk about it and people you know take a whack at it i think it's still very very uh unclear uh the the fidelity of our ips derived endothelial cells to to the real thing in vivo i mean i would argue that in vivo we're, we're still struggling with what endothelium is and all the subtypes there so i i was reading this paper with an eye towards the endothelium clearly it was my bias um and so i would have loved to see a bit more on that uh, specifically on yeah the subtypes arterial venous but know the relevance to to other endothelial subtypes at least some discussion of that and the differentiation protocol being so quick uh, also to me is it's, it's I don't want to say it's well it's just interesting to me that you can get to this endpoint in four days or something when it doesn't necessarily reflect the timing in vivo if this were other cell types I think a lot of people would say well you don't make a pancreas in four days or or what have you and so how can this in vitro thing that you have not be an artifact I'm not saying that that's that's the case here I just think that, that there really needs to be a lot more scrutiny placed on you know what the hell is an endothelial cell when it comes from an IPS cell in the first place I think endothelium has been mostly defined by its function in situ in the body and so you know getting a, a in dish correlate of that i think is a lot we need to do to define it
1: absolutely i think the the prospect of making ecs within a few days is exciting but the, like you said the question is what are these things really and like you're also alluding to there's a a lot of different types of endothelial cells found in the body we can't just say oh arterial versus venous. there's more to it than that right there's more specific markers of you know say Arter- coronary artery endothelial cells. There's been, we've talked about it on the show, the single cell papers that have come out there to characterize the different types of endothelial cells that are found in the body. And there's literally hundreds. So I, I think there uh, there's more to it than just saying that this is an endothelial cell. This is an arterial endothelial cell. Uh, I think you got to take it one step beyond
0: that. We're getting there. I mean, the anchor of endothelial biology is the Hubec which is a a human umbilical vein endothelial cell that behaves like an artery and never drifts. So, I mean, we're totally in space, I would argue, a little bit with endothelium. Um, Moving on, uh, this is a a story I have, uh, which is, I think, particularly appropriate to our guest, uh, Dr. Finley, because it's uh, from Don Wei Huang Fu and Christina Leslie, who are investigators at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, right next door uh, and it's a real, I love this story because it's, it's you know, twofold, it's practically useful, but also I think delves into concept. And, and the concept here is one of like specification of organ-specific progenitors, right? It's a central concept of developmental biology, is how do you get these specific organs and tissue subtypes from these kind of zones, right? You start up with the three, three germ layers, and then you have these kind of clade lineage diagrams but uh, there's always a node there uh, that gives rise to multiple cell types. For example, the pancreas, liver, and duodenum, the duodenum being that first segment of the small intestine, they arise from adjacent progenitor domains and have this kind of zone, right? This common lineage history. Um, And while those three uh, tissue types uh, come from this common onlage, the intrinsic controls that govern the plasticity within that onlage to generate one derivative, um, it's not really well understood. Uh, It's critical, not just in embryogenesis, but also in like regeneration, right? You'll get the kind of parental cell that'll then give rise to the um, derivatives that make up the tissue. And also on the other side of that, not just in regeneration or in organogenesis, but also in certain pathologies, right? So you can have plasticity, where you get cells wandering outside of their lineage um, and maybe giving rise to some malignancies. So the, the, the way that this is controlled at the g- genome level, epigenetically, transcriptional programs, how that's uh, orchestrated, um, it's really not well understood. Uh, and the, there's this idea of not just lineage commitment, right, to, to generate the pancreas from that pancreas, liver, duodenum, common onlage, but how do you then um, reduce the plasticity? How do you restrict from going from those other fates, uh, it's not just specifying pancreas, but shutting down the others. Um, so, doctors Leslie and Huang Fu they had this uh, uh, a uh, screening approach to try and address some of the underlying transcription factors that govern pancreatic differentiation. It's well known that you know PDX one, for example, is this master regulator, but there's also these upstream transcription factors like FoxA two, GATA four, GATA six. Um, that are important for regulating PDX2. And the key here is that those three factors, FOXA2, GATA4, GATA6, they're also broadly expressed throughout the gut tube. And they're important for generating other organ domains like the liver. So how do you get those master kind of pioneer factors? How do they uh, regulate PDX1 and only PDX1 in the pancreatic lineage in order to address that uh, Dr. Huang Fu and Dr. Leslie, they undertook this CRISPR screen um, on a genome scale and what they hit upon, in addition to finding the known factors, PDX1, GATA4, etc., they hit on this HHEX, hematopoietically expressed homeobox protein. Okay, um, And what's interesting about this is that this HHEX factor, it's been shown in mouse. When you knock it out, it has nothing. it's not necessary at least for mouse pancreatic differentiation, the HHEX deficient endoderm are capable of, of activating the pancreatic program. But in human cells, uh, the, the investigators here showed that it is pretty important. And they, they went deeper down mechanistically to show that the way that HHEX drives pancreatic differentiation is by co- uh, cooperating with those uh, pioneer factors, FOXA1, FOXA2, and, and GATA4, and kind of restricting their purview, right? So when you knock out HHEX, you get a failure to specify pancreas, but the reason why is because you have this unrestrained activation of these other sites. You get expansion of the liver and duodenum lineages. So this I think is is practical in terms of showing that HHEX is a novel regulator. of pancreatic differentiation is important um, for that pathway. But as a conceptual advance, I like it because it's I think something you can generalize um, as a concept of how there's these gatekeeper transcription factors as the authors call them like HHEX, that the way that they govern lineage commitment um, is not just by uh, a positive input, but also by restricting the plasticity that is um, intrinsic to a a particular kind of or, or or zone uh, or region of, of the embryo. So as usual, Donway coming with uh, not just a, an important piece of the puzzle of how we can get functional pancreas, but also uh, you know, pioneering a concept that can be applied more generally. So a great study from her and Dr. Leslie. I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, transcription factor biology is really just unbelievable sometimes, the complexity, complexity of it all. And just the power of these proteins and altering differentiation potential. I mean, we have this HHEX, which is upstream of some really, really powerful transcription factors in, in, in themselves, the FOX factors, GATA4, GATA6. I've studied both GATA4 and GATA6 in the context of cardiac differentiation, heart totally separate from, from this, right? But also it, it just tells you how there's so many different intricate, finely regulated switches that are just present in a transcriptome that can just alter cell fate, cell commitment, lineage commitment at the, the tip of a hat almost, right? So really just finding these master regulators, these gatekeepers, as you mentioned, is, I think, uh, uh, so critical to not just differentiation and fine tuning our differentiation, but just getting a better understanding of just developmental biology in general, right?
0: absolutely i mean it's in the name hematopoietically expressed homeobox protein hematopoietically we didn't even talk about the blood in this story so it's in the liver and here we're showing it's in the pancreas so yeah it just goes to show you know these things have uh, they wear many hats these transcription factors they've been tuned over eons of uh biology to to do a lot of things um and we really have only scratched the surface uh you know someone else who has really delve deep into fundamental processes uh, and really revealing to us how little we know about the metabolome and pluripotency is Dr. Finley coming right up. But before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell is hiring. Stem Cell Technologies is a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, StemCell is a team of scientists helping scientists. They're looking for creative, driven people to join their international team. Explore more than 100 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality and science communication, all at jobs.stemcell.com. Arun, are they coming after our jobs? What's the science communication post? You guys, come on. All right, everybody, here we are with the interview with my dear neighbor, Dr. Lydia Finley, who is assistant member with the cell biology program at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. The Finley Lab investigates how cellular metabolic pathways regulate cell fate decisions in stem cells and cancer cells. They combine genetic and metabolomic approaches to investigate cell type-specific growth requirements and elucidate how flux through central metabolic pathways regulates key cellular activities, including self-renewal and differentiation. Dr. Finley, thank you so much for joining us on the show.
2: Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: The pleasure is ours. Uh, It really is always a pleasure to welcome one of my neighbors from the Tri-Institutional Stem Cell Initiative Now, metabolism rules us all. Uh, It becomes painfully clear in the summer for me on the beach, but the role of metabolites in signaling and cell fate decisions in pluripotent stem cells has only really come to the forefront in the last few years. Thanks in no small part to the work of yourself and your colleagues. Why don't you start us off with a 10,000 foot view of the focus and goals of your lab?
2: Thanks so much. Yeah, we are interested in the observation that different cells have different metabolic profiles. You can think about it really simply liver cells have different metabolism from a muscle cell and that metabolism isn't spontaneously acquired upon terminal differentiation but rather really is developmentally specified. That's a question we've gotten really interested in is. um, When is that cell type specific metabolic profile established, and what are the functional consequences of it? Is it required for establishment of cell fate? If so, how? How could metabolites affect cell fate programs? And also, is it required for the viability of specific cell types? And if so, can we exploit that? Can we harness metabolism to enrich for cells in desired lineages or with desired characteristics?
1: Yeah, so I think it's perfect that we actually have you on the show right now and the timing is just perfect, right? Since your lab actually just put out this bombshell nature paper that I think just might rewrite the textbooks in some ways. You were able to show that a non-canonical tri-carboxylic acid or TCA cycle underlies cell identity using mouse myoblasts and human em- or embryonic stem cells as your workhorse model systems. And perhaps the most exciting to listeners of this show, the Stem Cell Podcast, you actually demonstrated that during exit from pluripotency, embryonic stem cells switch from this canonical to non-canonical T- TCA cycle metabolism. And you know, blocking the non-canonical TCA cycle actually prevents cells from exiting pluripotency. What an amazing finding! So, tell us a little bit more about this work and how you got into this idea of alternate TCA cycle studies in the first place, and ended up turning the textbooks upside down.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I was really flattered that you guys covered this paper on an earlier podcast. Uh, paper is a labor of love, and actually, is a good example of how sort of the two passions of our lab came together independently. The first is just the biochemical observation in and of itself that um, the TCA cycle is maybe bifurcated downstream of citrate. And so for those who don't obsess about metabolism the way we do, uh, the TCA cycle is traditionally uh, thought to be a mitochondrial process whereby citrate is produced by oxaloacetate and acetyl CoA that sort of kickstarts the cycle. The purpose of the cycle is in its purest form to regenerate that oxaloacetate to take another acetyl CoA in and burn it. So in its purest form, the production of citrate is then linked to the burning of citrate in the mitochondria. And we had found, you know, actually started my postdoc sitting there. I didn't know that, didn't know that you could actually pull mass spec peaks automatically. I, I sat there doing it by hand and writing them into Excel by hand. So I spent a lot of time staring at isotope tracing patterns. And that really got me interested in this fact that maybe citrate wasn't all being burnt in the mitochondria. And so it was something that had been percolating in the back of our minds for a long time and a student in the lab had been looking at how metabolites are produced downstream of citrate and she was again finding these interesting patterns that maybe didn't dovetail with the notion that most of your citrate is burned in the mitochondria and might actually transit into the cytosol where it could do this sort of alternative biochemical reaction At the same time, another student in the lab was really interested in exit from pluripotency so he was taking mouse embryonic stem cells, which turns out are an amazing model for cell metabolism, which I can also talk about if you guys are interested in. And he was just sort of unbiased asking what are the metabolic changes that happen as cells dismantle the pluripotency network and it became very clear that these two projects were colliding and that the major metabolic transition that was occurring in exit from pluripotency was a rerouting of citrate metabolism from mitochondrial oxidation to this more cytosolic pathway and what we found then is that actually this is required um, really full stop the cell has to access this new metabolic strategy. It's a fundamental part of exit from pluripotency is to do this non-canonical TCA cycle. And if cells can't do it, they die. So it's really, this to me is a really nice example of this question we're getting more and more interested in, which is metabolism is being required for sulfate transitions. Not necessarily because of anything so um, glamorous as regulating chromatin and gene expression profiles, but really the fundamental nuts and bolts of what do you need to, to meet your bioenergetic demands?
0: Yeah. That, like Arun was saying, rewrite the textbooks because that. I mean, I'm going to be honest. When you come in with all the citrate and this thing and yeah, that thing, about- <laughs> I'm I'm like I'm I'm going blind. But that's just because I'm a simple man. But the 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 what hits me there is, and as Arun alluded to, rewriting the textbooks is that an idea that in retrospect seems obvious. That's the the most seminal discoveries, right? And as you just encapsulate it there, it's so obvious, right? These cells are banging. I mean, they're doing really tough, challenging things, and they have to be poised to do it all. So you know it's it, in retrospect, it's not at all unexpected that they have this you know novel strategy. Um, and it takes, I think, a great and and uh, a, a open mind to um to get at that. But more than that, th- this to me, it, it's a great illustration, the work is a great illustration of the tremendously rich understory of metabolism that exists beneath all the biology that is the main focal point. I mean, we're all focused on the cells and the biology and the function and the mechanism. But, um, you know, the metabolism is really underneath all that. I remember working several years ago with Stephen Gross, another brilliant character from the Tri-Stem Cell Initiative. And this was in the early days of the seahorse real-time metabolic analyzer, which is like a dinosaur, I'm sure, at this point. But just because we're working on it and I'm so, so so naive to the whole thing he really laid it out to me how there's this very wide range of intermediates that exist within the metabolome of an organism or a cell for that matter um and they go beyond just you know what's coded in the genome there's all those intermediates and it's hard to really put your finger on it the human metabolome database has data on more than forty thousand identified metabolites metabolites in there there's similar databases for yeast E. coli, cancer, the aging mouse brain, et cetera. You know it all. Um, and it seems like there's no ceiling uh, to my mind of the number of metabolites or we clearly haven't um, really figured out all that's out there. Um, and that's the challenge, I guess. Uh, you, you were talking about how you're drawing the peaks by hand with the mass spec. Yeah. Now yeah. with the genome, transcriptome, proteome, there's a script, right? There's this handbook mm-hmm. where you have like all the, the genes that are um, in a specific organism. And so the systems are more amenable, I guess, to unbiased screening approaches from my perspective. Are there similar methods for unbiased screening in the metabolome? for hypothesis generation or do you have to know what you're looking for and if if you have to know what you're looking for how, how do you come to your hypothesis in these systems a lot of questions sorry
2: no i, I think it's great and i think that's it, you're exactly hitting on the themes that we're interested in exactly what we were trying to do which is beyond even the fact that we probably don't know all the metabolites and all the different configurations so it's just for example this really cool paper out in nature from john long's lab at stanford reporting this lac fee so it's a, a phenylalanine that's been modified with a lactate and it during exercise after high intensity exercise that lactate gets dumped onto phenylalanine and now you have this new metabolite that's in circulation it suppresses appetite anyway so beautiful example of sort of what you're talking about this limitless possibility of metabolites not necessarily to be annotated in a way that is predictable from data sets but we were even simpler in some ways we're always the the simplest thinkers um maybe which can be a pro and a con um it was really the works stem of the breakthrough for us was um, again in embryonic stem cells looking at them in different stages of development we found that they had had very different fuel needs the original paper back when i was a postdoc with bryce carey found that when they were in the naive ground state of pluripotency mouse embryonic stem cells didn't need glutamine and this was really surprising for even those who don't love metabolism who are listening do culture stem cells, I'm sure that's why you're here, probably, and you know that you're always adding glutamine to your cell culture media or glutamax, which I have thoughts on too, if you care, but um, and you added tenfold molar excess over all other amino acids. It's the seminal discovery that allowed Harry Eagle first to capture cells in culture, so this requirement of glutamine, fundamental feature, and yet here are naive embryonic stem cells saying, eh, no thanks. Um, And that made us realize that there are different ways to grow, right? It's a really simple thought, but this is a striking illustration to us that even though you need the same thing in the end, you need membranes, you need lipids, you need protein, cells were meeting these demands with different metabolic strategies. And so this unbiased approach that we took to try to figure out what are those different metabolic strategies was to take um, whole genome CRISPR screens from the DEPMAP project, which is an amazing resource of CRISPR screens in over 800 cancer cell lines. And uh, other labs have shown that by looking at correlated dependencies, how much different cells need different genes to grow, and seeing how those networks are correlated, you can find genes that work together. And Kavanch Bursoy is a great example of a metabolism lab who's been using this to um, annotate new functions to unknown genes. So sort of, again, getting at what you're getting at, how do we start to annotate this map? But we took it with the genes that we do know. How do the metabolic networks that we do know assemble into functional modules? And that's actually figure one of our recent paper, where we found that the TCA cycle splits into two separate functional modules, upstream and downstream of citrate. So I I think this... (laughs) it just adds to the complexity of what you talked about it's not just about metabolites and what we don't do or don't know about metabolites but it's also about sort of the infinite ways that the pathways we do know can wire Um, and starting to tease apart why you might metabolize um, a certain nutrient in one configuration versus another what are the triggers what are the stimuli for that it's going to keep us busy for a really long time Mm
1: your passion for the field and metabolism is evident based on what you just said, but thank you also for distilling it down to the stem cell side of things and kind of looping us into your, your excitement as well. Um, since we are the stem cell podcast, I did want to dive a little bit more deeply on how we might be able to harness some of these things that you discovered in these alternate TCA cycle, for example, these, you know, alternative metabolic pathways, how we might be able to harness this for, you know, influencing stem cell differentiation, for example, which is Something that all of us, most of us do, um, on listeners for the show, right? Folks who are working with pluripotent stem cells or adult stem cells who are trying to make their terminally differentiated products better, faster, that sort of thing. I mean, in contrast to these terminally differentiated cells, cancer, cancer cells, and stem cells, of course, retain the ability to re-enter the cell cycle, proliferate, and all this kind of stuff, and differentiate. And there's a whole, as you're alluding to, a whole slew of metabolic influences in that. So kind of. If if you could envision a way that you may be able to harness, say, this alternate TCA cycle to improve differentiation or alter differentiation capacity, what how how, how would you envision us doing that as stem cell biologists?
2: Yeah. So starting I, starting narrow just with the the two different TCA cycles, what was really striking to us, and we're still trying to wrap our heads around, is the fact that if we inhibited this non-canonical TCA cycle, which is activated when cells exit naive fluoropotency, the cells just couldn't exit naive pluripotency and actually so for those who know mouse embryonic stem cells traditionally you culture them in these two kinase inhibitors discovered by austin smith and Lif. and if you remove them cells exit naive pluripotency and we found using actually a reporter made by austin smith's lab a rex one reporter that the acl inhibition inhibiting the non-canonical tca cycle looked indistinguishable from keeping 2i LIF in the media which is just shocking to us 2i LIF is this gold standard for maintaining mouse naive pluripotency Um, And here, on its own, it was maintaining reporter expression. I mean, that came at a cost, right, so the cells, some cells are dying, so it's not as if it's the same exact thing as two I lift all roped up in one. But it's clearly an incredibly potent fate regulator, which is something we're trying to figure out, and I think it is a good example of the fact that you have to know what the metabolic networks are in the cell type you're trying to achieve. And doing everything we can to allow a cell to meet that metabolic network is gonna be a prerequisite for functional optimal generation of specific cell types. I just think and stem cell fields and you know, regenerative medicine, all that has been focused on signaling and and transcription factors. And I think what I would argue is that metabolism is co-equal, that these are three pillars of cell identity. And that to, to develop and harness and capture a cell in a specific stage of development, you have to know what its metabolic needs are and, and help it meet it. And it's not that trivial. It's not just like glucose and glutamine. Some cells need different amino acids or nutrients more than others. And our media, you know, a lot of companies are working hard to make their proprietary media with whatever special nutrients they've found improve stem cell growth. But but again, these are sort of starting from random templates of soup started by Harry Eagle. So I think there's a lot of work to do to figure out what are the nutrients that cells need to grow and how can we get them to them and how can we use that to get the cell the way you want it to look.
0: Yeah. And this, the way we want it to look, I mean, at least for the clinical applications, is, is safe, right, and effective. And we were just recently at the ISSCR 2022 meeting and it was clear to me, at least I think everyone would agree, that a byproduct of the cell-based therapies that we've been talking about for decades now being really close to translation. I mean, it re- it's so exciting. Um, I can't even tell you guys, if you listen to this, listen to our coverage of the, of the conference. We have a lot of um, really amazing talks that we caught, which just illustrate how close we are to translation and all these promises. But the, the byproduct of that is that in, in many of these clinical spaces is that there's an enhanced focus on measures that may, must be taken to scale the methods, right? To, quote, democratize, right? And that's in, in large part involves minimizing the cost so you can make these therapies available, um, as well as making them safe and, and scalable, right? But one talk I thought really it illustrated the point. Uh, it described this novel new culture system that was like an industrial scale type thing. It had all these feedback controls for pH, for glucose concentration, it even had this cell aggregate controller, where it would stir the cultures. The point being is that as soon as anything moved outside of the optimal, you would supplement the media and bring it back. Um, And it uh, resulted in like these 10x yields of the cells and everyone's given a standing ovation, not really. But I mean, it's like everyone's excited, I guess, about this idea about optimized cultures in a bioreactor but do, do you think it's possible that the altered growth conditions may alter the metabolic profiles of cells in a manner that could impact their efficacy? And, and really the point there is kind of to your, to your uh, comment there at the end of the last answer is, is I, I imagine that any cell going to people needs to be rigorously qualified. I mean, we all know that, but is there a metabolic standard? You said everyone's worried about the transcription factors, et cetera. Is there a metabolic standard or met- metabolomic standard? that could or should be applied when you're trying to qualify these cells for application. And if there is, or if there should be, like what would that look like? Uh, Any ideas there?
2: That's really interesting. You know, metabolism is so reversible. It's so fast. It can turn over that my first instinct to your, my first answer is probably no, I wouldn't worry so much about what steady state levels of metabolites might be at any given point in time. Because that's going to be dictated by both what you've given the cell and its demand for the cell. So steady state metabolism is an integrator of those two things. What matters more, I think in that case for QC, probably will be transcriptional um, and genetic quality control. But what I think the strength of that, the fact, so maybe metabolism is not going to be diagnostic in that sense. although I could imagine it would be if you're trying to think about that. Um, But metabolism by being reversible, I think actually becomes a really um, attractive intervention for improving sulfate because unlike some kinase inhibitors that might hit pathways, you don't know what they're doing, might affect genomic stability. I mean, this is a criticism that has been leveled at the 2i medium formulation that it induces genomic instability over long periods of culture. Metabolism can be a rapidly a rapid reversible intervention. It's actually, I think, very attractive. And so we found that because naive cells really, really need glutamine, if you just 24 hours deplete glutamine from the media, you remove the cells that are more committed, that have exited naive pluripotency. And the application we used for this was reprogramming, which is everyone on this call probably knows is an inherently extremely inefficient heterogeneous process. And just by removing glutamine for 24 hours after withdrawal of the Yamanaka factors, you can eliminate the incompletely reprogrammed cells. I think without a lot of the fear of permanent genetic interventions um, that others sorts of interventions might occur. So I think metabolism might be a really useful tool. And maybe, yes, it's one measure of benchmark that you would. So are these cells happy? Are they growing? Do they have a steady state metabolic profile that I've previously established to be correlated with a good cell? Sure, I could imagine that being one of a toolkit. um, But but I don't think that's the full power of metabolism.
1: Hmm. I think that's a really good point. I mean, you're referring to maybe regulating metabolism as as a perhaps cleaner approach to, you know, altering cell fate and cell maintaining cell function, Mm -hmm. stem cell function. Um, You know, the example that I like to refer to that's near and dear to the work that I do with cardiomyocytes is, you know, when I'm making cardiomyocytes from iPSCs, we do a glucose deprivation step to actually purify the myocytes, which are able to break, you know, metabolize fatty acids and all these, uh, alternate pathways. Right. But the, the other cells in the population are killed off because they can't tolerate uh, the, the lack of glucose. So I think it's it's kind of th- these tricks in a way are stuff, things that we can apply to all of our cell cultures and perhaps grow ourselves in a way that's more optimal for what they want to be, what they want to turn into and so on. So, so thanks so much for you know talking about that for a little bit. I, I do want to shift away from this, the nitty gritty of the science just for a little bit. I want to talk a little bit more about you and your training since a lot of uh, the listeners on our show are junior folks, trainees who are interested in following, you know, career paths and trying to figure out how you got to where you where you are. Um, so you've been at MSK Memorial Sloan Kettering for a little while now, a few years. You did your postdoc there, and you started your own lab there at uh, in 2017. We've covered a number of papers from MSK, yours included. Uh, I mean, it's a tremendous institution for anything related to basic cancer biology, right? That's that's a fact. I mean, tell us, tell us your kind of. Unbiased or biased thoughts on MSK, why you've stayed there for so long during your training, and also in your junior career, and if you had to make a pitch to new recruits to your own lab, what would that be?
2: Oh, I think MSK is absolute best place to do science, um, and I'm, I'm, I don't even think anyone here is gonna listen to this podcast maybe so I think it's I'm not just preaching to my higher ups um I and I, I don't think I would have known about it. I landed at MSK somewhat accidentally I had trained in Boston I'm from New York but I actually didn't even know MSK had research which is too bad um and I stumbled on it largely because Craig Thompson had come to be president of MSK and I knew Craig's, lab, Craig's work he had been one of the first to show that metabolism could intersect with chromatin modifying pathways and this seemed like the big horizon I wanted to chase. So I joined Craig's lab for a postdoc, a little bit hesitant coming from Boston, which feels like an epicenter. It is an epicenter of science. What was it gonna be like in the Tri-I area? And I have to say, Tri-I knocks it out of the park. So Tri-institutional area is, for those who don't know, MSK is right across the street from Cornell, um, where where our host is and Rockefeller University. So there's this huge, huge scientific ecosystem amazing labs in all areas of science and then at sloan kettering you have the sloan kettering institute where we are which is actually a basic science research um, there are cancer associated labs but it's immunology developmental biology structural biology molecular biology so it's basic science research embedded in this tri-institutional group with all the sorts of research you want, but also sort of spurred on by the higher purpose of knowing that there are cancer patients across the street who would like us to do good work. And I think that combination of factors is extremely unique and extremely motivating. And it's been a really fantastic place to do, I think of myself as a basic scientist, to do basic research that occasionally veers into cancer.
0: I mean, I have to agree, but we all knew that that was coming. I, I, I want to just r- r- circle back to what you said there. you from New York. You spent some time in Boston. We know it. whenever anybody says that they did anything academic in Boston, they mean Harvard. All right. So just say the H word, for God's sakes. So you in a room both rocking it at Harvard. He yeah. couldn't cut it in the city, so he went out west. But you <laughs> came back, Lydia, so respect yeah. to you.
2: Oh, Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i would say though in, in all seriousness the great thing about the work and where we do is that the city really sells itself it does. um especially as we climb out of this pandemic t- pandemic chasm i should almost call it yep. pandemic which i think they should yeah, call I, I thought it.
2: that was on purpose
0: <laughs> um anyway no offense to Rune. i mean you got the weather and the waves and the earthquakes so congratulations on that but this city but we- got most of what's left and uh One thing I I have to admit, though, is we live in a bit of a bubble, right? And I recently, especially recently, in the last five years or so, uh, really come to take for granted the scientific and political ideology ideology that's that's here, but not universally shared, of course, right? Um, Although you wouldn't know it, being in the city, we all live in this bubble. Um, The United States is incredibly polarized, now more than ever. Um, Now, of course, I have to touch on this, given the timing, while the scope of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade cannot be measured, uh, and we're not going to really, really tackle that in any degree of completion on the show, the impact on science and medicine, I think, is pretty stark, arguably, um, clearly, obviously. And, And we had a crisis in the infancy of stem cell research that mired progress until IPS cells came along. And offered a practical alternative to destruction of embryos, but I have very, you know, vivid memories of that time, and it was tough, especially to be a young scientist. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm fearful. Uh, the row reversal will affect re- research in obvious ways, right? We know that by reducing access to fetal tissue, but, but the chilling effect on research and oversight feels much more grave. But I don't think we've really begun to think about and internalize it. What, what's your take on this? And, and what do you think we scientists can and should do uh, to influence the debate?
2: I think the repercussions are, are overwhelming. And I think we're going to be finding new ones and grappling with them for decades to come, no matter what happens next. The devastation is going to be really uncalculable. Um, one minor thing, I, I think it, it's very hard to know what to do next or how to proceed how to help everybody how to help research um i will say that where we do have choices we should make them and one obvious place we have a choice is where we hold conferences we have different states we have other countries and i think that given that that's optional we don't have a choice anymore. And we have to have them in states where everyone feels safe attending. And I'm not talking about voting with our dollars is 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 one aspect. But what I really want to emphasize is the importance of inclusion to our the members of our scientific community and how vulnerable people might feel. It's already extremely daunting to attempt to travel or to contemplate traveling if you are pregnant or trying to be and making decisions, trying to decide whether to prioritize your career or your pregnancy, is is a devastating decision that no one should have to make. And it, and I think it's really important that we consider that we're inclusive whenever we have the option to be. Um, I guess that that's the easiest <laughs> and and least controversial thing to say. I think, but but where we have choices, we should make them.
1: No, thank you for sharing that. And it's um, it's important to hear that from someone like yourself, a a young investigator in the field, who's not shy about sharing these thoughts, you know, openly, I think this is really important um, that we discuss this. I mean, this is such a trying time in this country, and we can have an entire episode on this. Um, Probably won't, but I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, You know, staying kind of in the, the realm of science peripheral discussions, we always do our background research on the show and we found out that you actually used to be a, a track and field athlete back in the day in, in college and apparently that's ins- what inspired your interest in the studies of metabolism so that's it's pretty neat it's a little different i mean there's a there's a strong connection right between exercise muscle fatigue metabolism and and you know after Those days in college, you've been in the metabolism field ever since. So it kind of got you into it and kept you there, right? So, I mean, tell us those early days, about those early days of getting inspired to go into the metabolism field and and in particular for our younger listeners who are, you know, wanting to know about people's career paths, how that inspiration from your everyday life as a track and field athlete actually turned into a productive scientific career.
2: Yeah, I, I really would like to emphasize that I don't think I even, in the abstract, I probably knew that scientists existed as human beings and existed as a profession, um, but I was not really aware of that fact. So even <laughs> as a, I think I finally joined a lab my junior year of college. So I was, I was a, a late um, convert to science. And the way it started was exactly as you said, I was taking a physiology class and the lecturer was talking about muscles and how they worked. And I noticed that nowhere in the lecture, was he talking about why we got really tired when we worked out um, because it seemed like the muscles could just keep switching fuel sources and I thought well what's up if they just have more and more fuel sources why am I so tired um, and I had other questions too about muscle soreness etc so I for the first time asked a question after class you know waited in line behind all the pre-meds and um, finally worked up the courage to ask my question and the professor said well you know that a great question. I actually have no idea, but you should come work in my lab. And I'm really grateful he did that because I don't think I would have, it would have occurred to me to do so otherwise. And I think this is an example really of what proactive mentoring looks like. Um, it's not necessarily waiting for someone to ask for help, but but seeing people and saying, here's here's a way that you could you know um here you belong i think is what he was saying and and i actually did, I didn't end up joining his lab i joined a different lab daryl newfer um, who studied muscle metabolism during recovery from exercise which i was really interested in and daryl just always treated me again like i was a scientist he said finn when you go to grad school you'll do this um which meant a lot to me because i don't think i would have really even realized that grad school was sort of an option um and let me be clear it's not like i i'm come from an extremely privileged background, I just was totally ignorant, Um, and I would also like to say that I accomplished exactly nothing as an undergraduate. I spent two years trying to blot for um, phosphorylated PDH in mitochondria from rat muscle, and um, I think eventually a year in, Daryl said, why, "Why, isn't this working? You know, what's going on? What have you been up to?" And anyway, the antibody didn't work, but I kept going back and getting those blank Western blots, and I really liked it. And I wrote my graduate applications all about how I would stand by the developer and hope, you know, this time this time won't come out blank. Um, and I think you know it's great that people now have more and more exposure to research before graduate school, but I also think it's really important to recognize that you don't need it. Um, it and and if you get to graduate school and you find that you're less um, versed in some of the techniques or subject areas than your peers, it doesn't mean you don't belong. It just means you haven't been versed yet, and you will be. So uh, that was really, that's sort of one thing I really wanted to say about how the the point is not where you are in the Y-intercept, it's about your slope, um, and we all can catch up.
0: Wow, I love that, the finale there. Cool why intercepting the slope i love that whole story it really had everything in it you know all the 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 they're not tropes but the the anecdotes that are common the, the persistence in spite a terrible failure and it all comes down to one technical wrinkle but the thing that really uh resonated with me most there was yeah i mean because you don't know what science is as a young person i grew up in new york too Uh, in New York City. And I had no idea Rockefeller University was, I didn't know MSK, I didn't even know they were there. Um, And I hope that this generation of scientists, because of people like you, maybe me, but more like you, are are making it more uh, desirable and you have a a higher profile. And and, and really the best part for me there is that, yeah, you don't know what science is, you don't know you wanna be a scientist. And what's great is that the day you became a scientist is when you asked a question that there wasn't an answer to, And a mentor said, I have no idea. That's that's the ingredients. You need to have a curiosity. You need to have a question. There's not an answer. You need someone to carry you along. Um, And you were lucky that way, like like many of us. But I think that your story really encapsulates a a brilliant arc. Um, And I'm glad we finished that part of the show on that because we got some more science peripheral, but you've already fit the bill. You've got such a great story of Finn. I mean, story Finn. Um, I like the nickname too, Finn. Uh, Please excuse me if I call you that. That's uh, great. Getting to the finale now, a few science peripheral questions. Um, first, if you could answer any single scientific question beyond why your muscles run out of energy, because I'm assuming you already got there. Uh, regardless of your expertise at chosen field, what would that question be?
2: How life emerged, for sure. Um, I think knowing what were the molecules that came first, what was the series of chemical reactions that allowed it to ultimately gain complexity. Were there many different paths? Was there one path? Um, did they converge? Think about how many fundamental questions in biology that one answer would tell us. And also maybe how many of our um, preconceptions about everything we, everything our cells are doing being done for a purpose um, might also be sort of knocked off their pedestal. Uh, I think it would really redefine not only what we know about biology, but but how we talk about biology too, to know how all of these processes came to be about.
0: Yes, that is a holy grail. I always wonder if, you know, it's one of those questions where it's like, well, I guess we'll never know, but aren't we gonna come to a point where we can simulate it? We can recreate it and offer a bunch of, I mean, we've already kind of done it um, theoretically. I wonder if uh, the question can be answered. And, and ultimately I'm guessing there's gonna be a lot of ways If you read any sci-fi, I always am partial to the sci-fi stuff where it's like alternative civilizations that that were based on something besides carbon. There's like two books out there like that, but that's such a cool idea to try and reframe your entire, you know, the whole paradigm. So just a little sojourn down my scientific uh, fiction interest there, sorry about that. Finally, uh, peripheral question two and the end of this interview, what's the biggest misconception about science that you would like to resolve?
2: That it is the game of a lone genius, or that it's for people who don't like other people, or any of the other variations on that sort of trope that science is for loners, um, or people who are special, or different, or other, in other, any way. None of those tropes are true. Um, in fact, they're actively hurtful, and I would argue false. Um, Science is for everybody that includes the people that are different that includes the people who don't like people but it also includes the people who do like people. Um, And we're all different right, so I think fundamentally science is a team sport there is no way around it, even if you're working at a computer by yourself in some magic lab that only exists by yourself reviewing your own papers funding yourself right, even if that magical scenario could exist you're still building on the work of other people. Um, and when science is really at its best, it's when people come together and brainstorm problems and new solutions. And if I think if you guys look at, I'm sure you agree, all the most transformative breakthroughs in these and other fields that have come out the past five, 10, 20 years, it's when different labs come together, different people come together because preconceived notions in one field can break apart conceptions in another field and and vice versa, I think. so. Really transformative breakthroughs come when new perspectives come to someone who has a lot of expertise and knowledge in one field. And so, only I think really in working together can we make really important progress. So, and that's the fun part too, right? The fun part's talking about science. So,
0: oh, for sure. I mean, that really uh, was underscored at the meeting this year. I felt like we came back to life and I don't know about Arun, but I got back to the lab here and was just, I couldn't, my, my trainees were quite, quite frankly, annoyed because I was just like, we're getting this mouse. And every night they get a whole raft of emails about what we're going to do next. And and they're like, well, let's, Mm -hmm. let's do one next thing first, and then we can move on to the next, next thing. So yes, uh, it is, it is really about the people and scientists do actually exist and they are cool and they are different and they're everything. And we're all a little bit of a scientist, but um, it's been really great talking to to you, Lydia, or Finn, as I'm going to call you forevermore, because you're really one of the brightest young stars out there and you've really upset the dogma already. So we're excited to see what you do next. And I'm hoping that you'll be a regular guest on the show moving forward.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun talking to you guys.
0: That brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks, you guys, for joining us for episode 221 of the podcast, coming up with an auspicious number, 222. Got to be lucky in some culture. Until then, thanks for listening.